Before we get started, Dead and Married would like to thank those very close to our Dead Black Hearts, our patrons. Thank you to William Rush, Karima Rhodes, my best friend and fellow Tom Atkins lover, Gary Horton, Carissa. Jonathan says thank you. Dr. Sexy himself, Kent Morton. Oh yeah. Kate Lamp, Travis's cowgirl, Lala Thomas. Hey girl. And last but certainly not least, our friends over at the Podmortem Podcast. You can also check out their very own show every Monday on all major platforms. And now, on with the show. Warning. The following show features spoilers and opinions performed either by professionals or under the supervision of professionals. Accordingly, Dead and Married and the producers must insist that no one attempt to recreate or reenact any opinion or fuckery performed on this show. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Dead and Married, you dirty birds. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Travis. And today we are talking about the cock duty film, Misery. Now, we understand that this is not, in fact, a Christmas film, but with limited resources as far as what's available for actual Christmas films, we thought, why not just set the mood this winter? And I'm waiting for Travis to be like, <laughs> that's right, you poop. That's right, Jim. <laughs> So now most of the Christmas movies we looked at, they're not good. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, there's a lot of them that take. There's a lot of movies that take place around Christmas time, but are not like Christmas centric, right? Necessarily, like you've got Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is specifically themed around Christmas. Mm -hmm. But then you've got other films that Christmas is sort of a background thing, right? Or there are Christmas films out there, but maybe they don't have the notoriety or the nostalgia for the viewer. So. Obviously, we don't want to tackle films that none of you have ever fucking heard of before. <laughs> oh, it's going to happen at some point. <laughs> so that was... But a- we didn't want to do what, Jack Frost either. So. Oh, my God. No, we'll we'll save. I think we've we've talked about it on the show before. We'll let Doctor Wolfila handle that type of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll stick to what people know. <laughs> we'll we'll let him do the dirty work. <laughs> but no, uh, speaking of Doctor Wolfila, this I couldn't help but draw comparisons to some of his his stuff and other uh, content creators, writers, actresses, film uh, actors, um, filmmakers, authors. Unfortunately, this is a story that is still very much relevant today, I would say. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, I mean, when Stephen King writes a book, he writes it for the ages. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think as long as there are people who are out there creating and making things, you're always going to have those people that take it too far. Yeah. So the, the synopsis, I guess, from IMDb is that after a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels, he comes to realize that the care he's receiving is not only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. Um, it's really about sort of toxic fandom. Yes. Because Annie Wilkes is his number one fan. Right. Um, I think that's the obvious answer, obviously, but I think that it also deals with themes of loneliness, maybe. And I mean, Annie Wilkes is a hard character to sympathize with, especially if you're talking in terms of novel versus film. Um, Because from what I understand, I, I have not read Misery. Go ahead and send all your hate mail now. But from what I understand, she was a lot more nasty in the novel, a lot, a lot darker 
darker. And I feel like in this film, and it's just a testament to Kathy Bates's acting or her portrayal of this character, that she brought so much more nuance and layers to this character. And I, she deserved everything that she got for it, in my opinion. Yeah, well, she was the first, I don't know, I forget if it said she was the first uh, female. Yeah, I think the so. The first actress or just the first person ever to win an Oscar for a horror movie. I think she it was that she was the first female. Okay. So, I but mean. She my, deserved every bit of it. My God. What a, what a performance. It's just, I was just sitting there watching this and thinking that the subtleties that she brought out, I could see. It's almost like I could tell, understand what she was thinking in her choices. Yeah, Kathy Bates really brought the crazy in this, but she was she's she was a stage actor because mm-hmm. they intentionally they wanted someone who wasn't well known because there was like Angelica Houston and Bette Midler, uh, Bette Midler some uh, other people, <laughs> Julia Roberts. Uh, Julia Roberts was considered for this role. I think that was for the stage though when they brought it to Broadway. Oh, I don't I don't know about that, but yeah. I'm, when they were casting her, but Rob Reiner wanted somebody that nobody knew, right? And Kathy Bates was a stage actor mm-hmm. actress. Um, which created some conflict, apparently, because she was used to rehearsing a lot, and James Caan wanted to rehearse as little as possible. Right, and that would aggravate her, so Reiner said, use that in your performance, that rage. Oh yeah, she she captured the rage, for sure. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> so, let's talk about uh, first times with this movie, get our, getting our collective cherries popped. So, this was your first time, wasn't This was it? my first time. I thought so. I know you, you had said that you thought you may have seen bits and pieces or so when I had been watching it before, but I also feel like this film is one that's in the cultural zeitgeist, like even if you've never seen the film, everybody knows bits and pieces from it, and the hobbling scene in particular. Well, every, yeah, everybody. I was going to say everybody knows the hobbling scene. Right. Yeah, even if you're not a horror fan, I feel like everybody knows, is aware of that scene. Uh, I actually cannot recall the first time I watched it, if I'm being really honest. Um, I I own it, but it's not one that I have nostalgia with from like watching it as a kid or anything. I don't recall watching it as a kid. I had to have already been an adult, but I don't for the life of me remember the first time I saw it. So I just know that at some point I watched it, loved it, and am a huge, huge fan of this film. I saw it yesterday. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's a good film. Um, I don't know how much rewatch value it has for me because she's kind of nuts. I mean, it's one you would watch every now and then. It's not one that you're like, right. I'm going to watch this movie all the time. Right. Like there would be something kind of wrong with you if you're like, I want to watch this movie all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, it isn't one that I visit very often. Like I said, I own it, but it's one that I only watch every once in a while and it's usually if I'm on a Stephen King kick in particular where I just feel like revisiting his films this obviously is one that is at the head of the pack but it's yeah it's it's not one that I feel <laughs> like I can handle a lot I guess but then you know this is coming from somebody who watches Hellraiser on repeat so I, I don't know <laughs> how to justify that <laughs> okay so moving on uh, this movie was released in 1990 and runs an hour and 47 minutes. It didn't feel like it was that long. No, it really didn't. It, it kind of went by pretty quick. So the IMDb user score is a 7.8 out of 10. Metascore is a 75. Really, I would have expected it to be higher, especially for a film that won an Oscar. Uh, five other wins and 10 nominations, you would think that you know, it'd be pretty high. Unfortunately, this feels like one that doesn't get the recognition that it deserves. I mean, it, it is notorious for one thing, but at the same time... We 
when you're talking about Stephen King films, this is not usually one that people bring up right away. You know, people always want to talk about The Shining, you know, which I, I still to this day think is pretty messed up because I think that this one deals, I mean, maybe it's just a retread in some ways, but it does deal with a lot of that, those themes of isolation and lonely, loneliness and battling your addictions and that sort of thing. Yeah, when I think about The Shining... I don't know. That's one that I'd have to read the book. I was not a fan of the TV miniseries that they did with Stephen Weber. Mm-hmm. Um, See, I thought people preferred that one to the It's Kubrick It's one. truer to the book, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, I just didn't. I don't know. It didn't do it for me. And I, I don't care for the Kubrick, The Shining. Mm, I heard that. I wish you didn't hear I, that. I know. <laughs> I know. And there are a lot of people out there that thought that everything that Kubrick did turned to gold. But he didn't do a great job with that adaptation. In like, your opinion. In my you, opinion. You need to say that because in, in my people. opinion, Yeah, in my opinion, he kind of butchered up what King wrote. I mean, that was more, it, to me, that film is more about what Kubrick wanted than what Stephen King put on paper. I can respect both sides of that, I guess. I can understand why Stephen King would be upset by it, um, deviating so far from his original source material. But as a lover of film and all things gorgeous, I can't help but love it, not to mention the performances. I just feel like for some reason, this one feels more intimate somehow. I can't quite put my finger on it, but um, especially in terms of when we were in lockdown, I don't know that I started reading a lot of King (laughs) when COVID happened. But I don't know. Something about this one feels more intimate than The Shining. I I don't know why. No, I agree. Some of that probably is because it takes place in... Basically one room of a house. Right. You know, 90% of the movie takes place in the bedroom and not in a porno kind of way. <laughs> but, and in The Shining, you've got the massive hotel. Right. As a backdrop. And then at the end, of course, you've got the hedge maze or whatever. But the the scale's a lot bigger in The Shining. And maybe. so I can see yeah, where. Yeah, maybe that's why. This know. one feels more intimate. It's a lot. That it's is, more claustrophobic, That I think. and the whole thing about, I guess, her caring for him and taking care of him and him being vulnerable and, you know, not really having a choice in. Her being so intimate with him, I guess, maybe lends to that too. Yeah, because, I mean, in in The Shining, there's nothing really physically wrong with any of those people, at least at the beginning. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas here, James Conn's character, Paul Sheldon, is immobile. Right. Like first with two broken legs and then later with hobbled feet. Right. He's completely at her mercy. So he can't. I and mean, she even brings it up at one point in the movie. He's like, remember, if I die, you die. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a very uh, claustrophobic movie, I think, for me. Right. And but, I think all of us have been, I mean, hell, you're sort of in that position right now as of this recording. <laughs> no, not quite. Well, no, I just... You can kind of... So, Travis actually got himself injured on the job this past week. You tore your calf muscle, right? Yeah. That's basically what happened? Yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) And so, yeah... It's funny because I was, excuse me, I was asleep for getting ready to go to work and I heard our youngest come home from school and um, I was getting up to remind her, you know, do not go play outside alone, that kind of thing. We've had kind of some scary things happen around here locally lately. And she actually beat, beat me, beat me to myself. (laughs) She, she found me and she said, mom, dad's in the hospital. And so I'm like, what? And so I got up and not only was Travis not in the hospital, he was here, (laughs) but 
his leg was all wrapped up and he had crutches. And I'm like, what the fuck? What happened or whatever? So um, we're we're definitely not in the same position where Travis is completely immobilized. But it's, you know, he's having a not good time right now. <laughs> I've had better. <laughs> I've had better weeks than this one. <laughs> right. But anyway, back to the cast and crew. Uh, it was actually directed by Rob Reiner, and that was Stephen King had a lot to do with that because Rob Reiner had done Stand By Me. Right. And so King kind of trusted Rob with his work, mm-hmm. not to fuck it up too much. Uh, I think that was the condition was he either had to direct or produce. Right. But he had to be involved to kind of make sure that they didn't screw it up. And going through here, there's not really all that many differences from the book to the film. I mean, apart from a couple of key things, it's pretty true to the novel. <clears throat> Yeah, the only real deviation that I was able to find anywhere was the humbling scene. Yeah. In I the mean, book, she cuts his foot off. Right. There's, and, there's character stuff and there's more importance placed on stuff. We get to read some of the stuff that Paul wrote in that Final Misery book. But to my knowledge, there's just not a lot outside of that. Right. So uh, Stephen King's credited as the writer for the novel, but William Goldman did the screenplay. But from what I understand, a whole bunch of people had their hand in that. Um, at one point, Warren Beatty was slated to play. Paul Sheldon and he worked on the script a little bit. Yeah. So why you would let someone do that, I have no idea. <laughs> but anyway, so our title character, well, I guess not really, because let's be honest, Kathy Bates is the main. She's the she's the star attraction. She's the star of the yeah. show. Mm-hmm. Um, but James Conn plays Paul Sheldon, the author. Kathy Bates plays Annie Wilkes. Richard Farnsworth is in this as Buster, and I knew that I had seen him before. But I couldn't remember where, so I had to look. And he's done like a million of the old westerns. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure I saw him there. Mm Because when I was a kid, we watched westerns. Um, Frances Sternhagen plays Virginia, which is Buster's wife. I loved her. It was funny. <laughs> That's another little funny thing last night is, uh, as an avid Sex in the City fan was sitting and watching. And of course, uh, she has done more than one Stephen King film. Also, uh, the mist comes to mind immediately, but I was sitting and as soon as I saw her face, I said, bunny. And Travis was like, what? And I said, no bunny. And he's like, yeah, what? <laughs> And I finally said, you know, her character, Bunny, Trey's mom on Sex and City. And he goes, oh, I thought you said honey. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't understand what you were saying. (laughs) But anyway. (laughs) Anyway, damn fine actress. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I I would say that probably Buster and Virginia are actually my two favorite characters. They are my favorites. In this movie. They actually. I mean, I, I love Kathy Bates' performance, but Annie Wilkes creeps me out. Yeah, those two actually reminded me of me and you a bit, just because they've got that kind of banter with each other. And I thought it was funny that they used the word spicy, because that is, in fact, a word you and I throw around a lot, particularly if one of us is in a bad mood. Like, why are you being spicy to me this evening? Right. (laughs) So, I, yeah, I enjoyed their characters very much and kind of felt like I saw a little bit of us in them. (laughs) Yeah, so one one final character. This the cast in this movie was actually pretty big, uh, but a lot of them, I guess, their scenes got cut. So, but the last one of note, Lauren Bacall was in this, mm-hmm. and she plays Marcia Sindel, which is uh, Paul's agent. Paul's agent. Mm-hmm. And I saw a picture of Lauren Bacall from back in the day. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I had no idea. You were going through and you were like, Lauren Bacall is is in this. And I'm like, what? Because I, you know, her character doesn't do a whole lot except for inquire about Paul's whereabouts. So I guess I just never thought of her in terms of that might be an important actress. She did look familiar. So when you did tell me that, I was like, oh, shit, I'll be damned. Yeah, that's what I that's what I thought, too. I'm like, I've seen her before somewhere. Mm -hmm. But this has got a a picture of her from like the the 40s. (laughs) 
All right, Travis, pull, pull so, your tongue back up in your face. I, it's in my face. <laughs> but yeah, I would not have expected her to be in a movie like that. Right. I mean, granted, she's just a supporting role, but still. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that about covers it for cast and crew. Yes. Oh, no, it doesn't. No, it does not. No, no. What are we missing? Who did the effects on this film? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, that's your favorite thing. Yes, That's it your is. favorite in the world. Yes, it is. Uh, K&B actually did the work for this, so... That was something I didn't know upon uh, the research for this either. So when I found that out, I was like, oh, cool. But then I did see an effect later on. And of course, again, before I knew who worked on it, I did see a couple of effects where I was like, ugh. <laughs> okay. But the hobbling scene when she oh, swings no. the hammer at that foot. Oh, goddamn. It's like. That's where it counts. James Conn just took one for the team because that looks real. Oh, yeah. That looks so bad. It's more like. Um, when the body falls and the head hits the typewriter and you can clearly see that's like a. Uh, uh, department store mannequin <laughs> well i was thinking of the prosthetic feet themselves they looked they I mean, look terrible i know that they're supposed to be swollen but they looked a little bit too swollen and too rubbery for my liking but i'm not gonna get all any wilkes with it like they did the best that they could so right and like you said the hobbling was just so it looked too real for it to be had any business being ugh. yeah <laughs> yeah you know what, though? Honestly, and, and there were some complaints about that. I know that when they were talking about doing the writing that William Goldman, I guess he spent a lot of time thinking about that particular scene and they changed it mm-hmm. from her cutting the foot off to doing what she did because uh, they thought it would be too much, be too, right. too graphic or whatever. I'm like, have you read Stephen King before? Um, mm-hmm. Because at some First point she also takes off a thumb, I right. believe, in the book. Right, right. Because he does something to displease her. She's a lot more evil in the book than yeah. she is in the film. Mm-hmm. But... There were people that were kind of upset, I think, by that, that they had changed it from cutting the foot off to the hobbling scene. But honestly, I think the hobbling is worse. Might be more disturbing. I absolutely agree. Because they could actually show it. Yeah. If they had shown her cutting a foot off, you'd be like, yeah, that's a fake foot. Well, and I think that that would have taken it into too over the top territory where it might have come across as cartoonish a bit you know because this is not that type of horror movie this is not supposed right. to be a, a gore fest so I, I feel like getting to watch that ankle or foot swing over like a barn door made it more <laughs> yeah <laughs> more grounded and more realistic right well I mean she's his number one fan she's not trying to <laughs> kill him she's just trying to keep him there right so yeah I don't know the hobbling scene that that the first when I saw that last night I was like oh shit Oh, oh that's Lord, so bad. Lord have mercy. Um, anything as far as score doesn't really stand out to me, unfortunately. In this movie, there is music. Yes. But I cannot tell you about it. <laughs> um, the only thing that I always think of that just stands out is the the music that is played during the hobbling scene. Like that, I can hear it in my head. But as far as any big musical cues or anything, I, I apologize to anyone who's a fan of the composer, but I just didn't find anything that really stood out to me. Yeah, there was wasn't like a killer's theme song that just jumped out and well, grabbed me. Well, don't have to have a theme Well, no, song. I'm just saying, but like, you know, a lot of your, your big horror movies, there's a, there's the music and it jumps out and then you're like, okay, I immediately know what film that's from. Right. This is not that. Yeah. Again, I, I don't think they necessarily have to have that, but as far as like having any music play that can, that makes you, invokes an emotional response in you, I don't really yeah. recall mm. anything outside the hobbling scene where you're just, you get that sense of dread from yeah it. what what little bit of music used in this film it's more atmospheric i think right sort of add to the sense of dread or whatever is about to happen or is happening mm-hmm. than it is to 
and be recognizable in its own right. Right. And it's um, moving on. It's the same thing, I feel like, with the cinematography, unfortunately. Um, there are, I did notice things that they did, a lot of focus on uh, things of, that are going to be of importance. You know, they, they put that stuff in the forefront. But apart from that, I don't really recall anything except the close-ups of stuff. There's all there's a lot of close-ups on things, you know, if it's um, Annie's face or... Or if it's a box of matches or a pack of, or a cigarette or a glass of wine, you know, there's a lot of those shots. And for somebody who's a lot smarter than me and probably studied film, they could tell me what type of shot that is. But unfortunately, I'm just a <laughs> I'm just a film watcher. So apart from that, I didn't notice anything else where I just went, oh, my God, that's fucking amazing. Yeah. Except for maybe the scene after the hobbling where there is a close up on her face and she says, God, I love you like that. That is pretty intense, but that that's mostly all that I saw was just a lot of close-ups on stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, they they the things that they tend to focus on are things that foreshadow. Yes. Like in the very beginning, you see him. He's right. He's finishing his novel, and you see this the single lucky strike and the single match and the Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. <laughs> How did she say Perignon? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Um, and then later, when after she captures him effectively, and she's having him burn the novel that he just wrote, you get a lot of focus on the lighter fluid, which is relevant later and a match again mm-hmm. so i think a lot of them are just foreshadowing shots like we're going to zoom in on this benign object of right. a sort that's going to sort of nod later. to the audience that this is going to be a thing yeah. that happens later yeah that was my thought um but aside from that the only thing that really sticks out to me like yeah they do a lot of close-ups on the characters faces but i'd have to watch the movie again or again and again but it seems to me like the more on the edge um annie wilkes is the more shadows are on her face. Like when she's super nice, Annie Wilkes, her face is really well lit. She's got her makeup on. You know what I mean? But the more, you know, the closer to the edge she gets, the darker the shadows are on her face and the less makeup she's wearing. So, I mean, that's more like the the makeup department and the lighting Mm -hmm. folks. But like the darker her personality is in that moment, the darker the shadows are on her face. And there's a couple of times when you see the the lights actually coming up from below her. Mm -hmm. So you really get sort of a sinister look. On right. Kathy Bates. Yeah, I can understand but, that. There's, there's there's kind of um, shadow and light thing. Sometimes that happens with her face where it's like one side is dark and one side is light. Even, right. Where it's, I don't know, maybe a subtle nod to her duality, maybe. Right. Because, well... For instance, in the in the very beginning when she's being like the good nurse or whatever, the room is very bright. She's very well lit. She's got her face on. You know what I mean? She's being super helpful and sweet and all that shit. And then later when she comes back and she wants him to burn the novel that he just wrote, you know, suddenly the makeup's not there or not as much there. There's shadows on her face. The room itself is darker. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think they, they made it the ambiance reflect her mental state, sort of. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. And they use they use lighting to convey that because towards the end when she comes in and she's all depressed, like there's a thunderstorm and it's pouring down rain. She's just wearing a bathrobe, no makeup at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, that thing that toddlers like do whole, to you. <laughs> I know. But the whole scene is very, very dark. Yeah. Because that's the place that she's in mentally and emotionally. She's in a really dark place. So everything around her is too. Yeah. Yeah. I was just sorry. You made me think of that. 
<laughs> there's that one scene where he's asleep and he wakes up and I think this is the scene where she no it's not where she drugs him is it or is it yeah there's a scene where he he's asleep and he wakes up and maybe she injects that's the scene where she injects him in the yeah. arm she's but like surprise motherfucker like in the middle of the night he just happens to glance over and she's standing right there <laughs> how many of us as parents have have woken up to that very same thing oh my god I woke <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night once and Isabel I shit you not her face was like three inches from mine. I almost swung at her. Like, like oh, holy shit. Holy you're shit. You're standing there with that like pathetic look on their face. Like, or like, I threw up. She scared the hell out of me. Like, you because she didn't, I don't know if she like tapped me or something. I just know that I woke up and I opened my eyes and there was a little face right in front of my face. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know, slam the door or something to wake me up before you do that. Yeah, fucking creepy shit. I hate it. Because <laughs> she's a ninja. Yeah. Like, that little girl can creep up on you. <laughs> I, I do want to say one more thing in terms of the cinematography and in terms of an overall vibe. Um, I, I did notice that there are a lot of tight, intimate shots Apart from the close-ups, um, there are these shots that are very close up on Paul's character lying in bed or on his face or, you know, as simple as him hiding pills to put away that feel very intimate, giving it a realistic feel to it. Like you feel like you're there with him, going through it with him. And then to talk about the color palette for just a minute, um, there are some films that are set in winter that you feel that atmosphere, it makes you cold. But at the flip side of that, even if you have something that is set in winter, you can get coziness from stuff too. It makes you want to bundle up and you feel warm inside, that sort of thing. Um, we were talking about that a lot with uh, Dreamcatcher, for instance, which we almost covered this week. It was between Dreamcatcher and this film. Um, it was going to be Stephen King either way. I, I apologize. But <laughs> we, we thought The Shining was too daunting a task for us at this juncture. But um, no, I, I noticed in Annie's house, even though she is this caregiver and she is it's caring for him there's nothing warm or inviting about her house like when like the property itself is all very barren there's no no trees it's just dirt roads and and snow there's just not a it, it actually kind of reminded me of the house in um house of thousand corpses or devil's rejects where it's this big house just kind of out in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing around it to make it inviting but her house in the inside is the same way yes there's stuff all over it's packed to the brim um full of trinkets and shrines and books and whatnot but at the same time it looks so cold in that house and i don't know if that's because there's no color in there i mean it's a lot of um earthy tones like even though paul's wearing a red he wears a lot of red i've noticed like he has this red henley on for a little bit he has this red flannel shirt on for a little bit and annie tends to wear also plaids but she wears a lot of blue I noticed um but everything else is just drowned out and even their blues and their reds are faded so it just feels very cold in that house and devoid of any life thus making it feel cold in there yeah any any shot you see like when he's sitting there typing and you can see snow on the ground outside but I don't know you look at it and you think I bet it's just as cold in that house as it is out there yeah I don't know why I have that feeling I guess I think it's just Annie Wilkes <laughs> So why don't we uh, get on into the story a little bit? Um, how do you feel about it in terms of what? It, what did you take away from it? Hmm. 
I think Stephen King put a lot of personal experience into this story, honestly. Does he always? <laughs> well, he does. He does. Um, I feel like it's a good story, and it's relevant, especially now. I mean, I'm sure it was relevant when he wrote it. Clearly, he was feeling that way when he wrote the book. Mm-hmm. But that thing where fans of a particular artist or writer or whatever seem to feel like they have some sort of ownership over that individual and the content that they produce or the books that they write is true. <laughs> it seems to be more true now. Right. Um, especially when you get into stuff like gatekeeping. Well, I mean, just look at the recent Halloween series that came out. Um, look at Star Trek fans, Star, Star Wars, Wars fans. Star Wars fans. I, th- I would say Star Wars fans are probably at the top. Yeah. Even music. I mean, Metallica comes to mind because they had been doing the one thing and what thrash basically when they first came out. Mm-hmm. And then the Black Album came out. And everybody's like, well, you're just a bunch of traitors. Right. You know what I mean? As you're, you know, you can set out with intentions at the beginning of something. Travis and I are examples of that now. You know, when we started this channel, we thought, okay, what are our peers doing? We need to replicate that. We need to follow the same beats that they are. And then finally, we got to a point where you're like, we were like, fuck it. No, this is ours. This needs to be our own thing. You know, if somebody wants this from a podcast, there's this person. If they want this from a podcast, there's their person. But we need to be genuine and true to ourselves and who we are as people. And that means sitting here and talking about what we think about a film, not telling you the film again, and giving some, you know, our personality and the way we talk to each other, you know, as if we're just having a conversation amongst friends. Yeah. And I think that that has worked for us. Um, Unfortunately, there's, there's too many people out there that don't want you to deviate from the formula. Well, and that that's kind of where I was going with this, is that in this situation, he had been writing a book series about Misery Chastain, and he was, he was done with it. Mm-hmm. He was done with that character, and it was time, he felt like it was time to move on. It's his books. He should be able to make that choice. Well, Metallica and- should be able to make the Black <laughs> Album if they want to make the fucking Black Album. Well, and but you get, and, and I have, she, she hated him for it. I have struggled with this as an artist too, where you have something that you love doing and maybe it was great when you started out, but because people demand stuff from you and aren't respectful of your time or your talent, it ceases to become fun for you anymore. You don't get any enjoyment out of it. And that's where he got to in that series of books. He felt like he was never going to go on to write anything of more importance or, you know, what would would be I don't know his it, it wasn't what he wanted to do anymore yeah. and that's okay um I don't know I I've heard feedback from different like different media like the hell one of the ones I just talked about like the Halloween franchise and stuff like that from personal experience with Stephen King um the Dark Tower series if you've never read it you should totally read it I will tell you I don't like how it ended but Stephen King didn't sit up there in Maine agonizing over whether or not I was going to like the ending of his book because it's not my book. It was his book and he ended right. it the way he saw fit. And even though I may not agree with the ending, it's still a great series of books and I'm okay with it. If I wanted a different ending, I should have wrote a fucking book <laughs> and then I could give it whatever goddamn ending I want. Right. <laughs> but, you know, you don't hate them because they didn't do what you thought they should have done or didn't give you the ending you wanted. They gave it the ending that they thought it needed. And that's what he did. That's what Paul Sheldon did. Right. It was time to end it. But you have a fan that can't let go. Mm-hmm. They keep insisting that Han shot first. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> And they just won't fucking let it go. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who shot first. I mean, for the record, Han did shoot. Move on. 
but people do that today. And I just, I don't know, it drives me crazy. And I think it's insane that, you know, a movie from fuck 30 years ago pointed this out mm-hmm. long before anybody ever started talking about it. Right. So. Well, it, like you were just talking about, except not the Dark Tower. It was actually the Eyes of the Dragon. This Stephen King wanted to write something that he his children could read. And I understand that, you know. And so he writes this this book from what from what I understand. It's still in the Dark Tower. It is. Mythology. It kind of takes place in the same in the universe? universe. Yeah. Um, so really, I don't, in that sense, I don't think it really deviated away necessarily. I, I love following that thread and seeing how they all connect. So it still connects. So what does it matter if it's something that's a little bit more fantastical as opposed to horror? I mean, the Dark Tower series, that's what it is. It's a jong, jong, a jong lying. I can't talk. What? <laughs> what? I can't talk. I <laughs> it's like a action fantasy horror. I was going to say a long, giant fantasy series. Yeah. It's a spaghetti western with fantasy and horror thrown in. Yeah. It, it, it's it's great. But because he got such backlash for that book, which from what I understand still did well critically. So it was still a good book. But people are like, this is not The Shining. This is not Carrie. This is not, you know, everything we're used to you doing. We don't like it. And so he turns around and writes Misery kind of as a clapback to those people. And then they went, oh, how yeah, dare they, you talk about me that way? <laughs> then when he wrote the kind of book they expected him to write, they get their feelings hurt. Yeah. But you know what? I read Eyes of the Dragon and I thought it was good. Um, I would like to see Stephen King, you know, flex his writing chops in genres other than horror. Which he has. So, I mean, if he wants to go off and write sci-fi or whatever, go for it, man. I'll read it. I think he's just about written every genre. It's just been that people have finally, I I hope anyway, um, this late in his life have finally looked at his writing as a whole and not seen him as just a horror storyteller, but just as a storyteller. Right. Which is ultimately what I see him as. Right. And in this movie, that's what Paul Sheldon wants to be. He just Mm -hmm. wants to be a storyteller, not Misery's storyteller. Right. Exactly. And are we ever clear on what type of book series misery even is (laughs) they look like trashy romance (laughs) novels which i don't blame him i'd want to get away from that too they do Um, i mean they have those very harlequin romance fabio on the covers yeah yeah and yet they're so popular with the world at large that it tells me that that's not what they are there's there's a few story points on here where they're not exactly clear with the details right so anyway kind of moving on i guess with the story away from the toxic fandom part of it i feel like the story was good i the It seems like, I guess, it fell pretty close to the book from all accounts. I've never read the book personally. (laughs) It just wasn't one that grabbed me, I guess. Like, I've read a lot of other stuff that's a little bit more obscure um, because they tied into the Dark Tower series. So, But some of the other ones that I guess are more mainstream, I didn't read those. I don't know why. I'm going to make it a point to read it now because there are things like like I was just saying a second ago, there are finer details that I feel like were glossed over that I would like to have some more insight with. Like, for instance, why was Annie killing babies? They, right. they never explain that. Right. You why just was get, she killing at all? You just get to see uh, Paul thumbing through her scrapbook. And so right. you get sort of snapshots and newspaper articles, but you don't know why she is the this way she isn't, is. This isn't a Michael Myers situation where we don't need to know why he's killing this that I feel like this is 
something has obviously happened in this woman's life where we as the viewer are curious to know why did she end up in this position? I mean, going through the scrapbook, she obviously killed her father at some point and then knocked off a rival student nurse to get ahead and then started killing babies and then brought to trial and ultimately acquitted for those crimes and then living a life of solitude after. But why? Well, I I know that they explored it in the show Castle Rock, which I admittedly could not get into. I tried. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't either. Um, But and and, and from what I understand, people did love that story point. Um, I heard that Lizzie Kaplan did a really great job as that character. And I love Lizzie Kaplan. Um, So I don't know. If anybody out there has watched it, do they go into why she ended up on this path? I would be really curious to know. So maybe maybe I'll read the book. Yeah. Yeah. So that was something that I, I, like you said, I was curious about. So like it showed that I guess her father died. He said he plunged but, to his death. But did she kill him? Yes. Or did he, his his death cause her to go right. off? Yeah, like exactly. That. But yeah, this, she's a more human character. And so you kind of want to know the motivation behind it mm-hmm. as opposed to like you brought up Michael Myers where they're not quite a human character. Mm-hmm. I mean, I realize that that's up for debate. Whether he's supernatural or not, but anyway. But they also but did. I, I don't really want to know his motivation. Right, but so. they also did. She brought up at one point that she's kind of always been this way. She was talking about going to the movies as a child, and when something didn't make sense to her, you know, everybody else seemed like they were fine and they went along with it. But she would be the one to jump up and say, "No, they wouldn't do that," you know. And us, we wouldn't be sitting here reviewing now if we weren't those same type of people in a sense, you know. You. You watch fucking Halloween Resurrection and you go, Michael Myers wouldn't take a fucking beating like that from Busta Rhymes. Right. Or anyone else for that matter. <laughs> you know? So we we are all guilty of doing the same thing. And hopping back to the toxic fandom thing for just a moment, the things that we sit here and do as reviewers saying this person wouldn't do that and then and getting mad or that person that you obsess over getting mad that you're like, for instance, Paul, it doesn't necessarily show him being a fan of something himself, but fans being film, uh, fan, ugh, I can't talk again. People being fans of reviewers, but those people who are reviewing are obsessed with something themselves. It's it's like a, a vicious circle. Everybody holds something up high. It's just some of us don't go out and kidnap the object of our idolatry. <laughs> right. Let's hope not. <laughs> But I feel like, like we were saying that that's a story that's important now and still relevant now. Um, And I don't think that it could have been pulled off as well as it had without the portrayal of those two characters. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, A lot of people say Kathy Bates stole the show from James Caan. I don't necessarily agree with that 100%. Neither do I. His performance was just a lot more subtle, but equally good. Yes. I think. Well, maybe not equally good, but his was still good. Yes, because, oh man, from the hobbling scene alone, he conveyed that, like, he was really going through it. He was so damn convincing. Um, the it's like scene, she really 
really hit him. <laughs> yeah, the scenes of his, I don't know, his urgency of, of, you know, every time she leaves that house of trying to make a new discovery or trying to figure out a way out of this situation. And I can't think of any other word except urgency that he's he's desperate for that. And so you have the scene of him sitting and him just sweating and red and, you know, obviously frustrated. You're right there with him. This They did so well with the suspense in this film that you feel anxious right along with him. Yeah, he conveys it and it was it would have been tough. I, I would think I'm not an actor. I would think it'd be really tough that every basically everything that you have to do, everything that you're going to convey is just your face. Mm-hmm. That's all you've got. Right. Because and, and because for most of this movie, that's really all he's got. Like there's not a lot of action that he can do. Yeah. I would say imagine laying in bed for how many hours a day. Right. And that's and, all you can do. And it's like, okay, now look scared. Like, I, I mean, right. most people, if you say, all right, look scared, they make some stupid face. It's not the face they'd make if they were really scared. Right. But he pulled it off pretty good. I don't know. But yeah, Kathy Bates' performance was was some next level stuff. Yeah. I I don't agree with that because some people were saying that she overacted. I I don't think so. No, 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 (laughs) no. I don't I think she pulled off like that I'm unhinged, like, and flipped the switch. Where she goes from being sweet Annie to freaking out and spilling tomato soup on the bed. Yeah. I, I feel like she handled that really well. I think, um, you know, because a lot of people talk about how she goes back and forth from one extreme to the other. Where she's sweet Annie one minute and then she's uh, scary Annie the next. But I feel like there's beats in between where I, I don't at any point think that she really loves Paul. But at the same time, you can see that he is the object of some kind of effect that she has and the scene where he proposes that they have dinner together and they're sitting down to this dinner she looks like a shy little teenage girl who is hanging on his every word and when he suggests them you know asks if he has if she has any candles so they can have a candlelight dinner she just takes this pause and it's I don't know something that comes across her face is something that I felt that in that moment because I have been in that situation before where this person that you have feelings for, it feels like they see you for a minute. And so when they suggest something, you're like, um, um, you don't know what to do. You kind of have that moment of, of panic and you feel like you're all thumbs and you can't get words out right. And she just conveys a little bit of childlike innocence in there, I feel. Yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. I think to me, like the, the dinner scene... I'm going to read something into the movie that's never there. But I, the way she plays it, I get the impression that like she has fantasized about this happening. Mm-hmm. And now it's really happening. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like a whole lot of the, him being in, in the house and writing a book. I bet she's had fantasies about that. And now I feel like I just need to read the book because I wonder if that's in there. Because, you know, there's a lot of like real life stalkers that have stalked celebrities and stuff. And like in their head, there was this whole fantasy life mm-hmm. where it was them and the person they were stalking together. Right. And I was listening to a review earlier where the guy said, you feel like you, these people think, feel like they have an emotional connection with this person that they've absolutely never met. Right. And I'm going to, it's going to sound really weird and, and nobody like start clutching your pearls or reading into it more than there is. But I understand that logic in somebody. How many times have you heard somebody tell a music artist or a writer your work saved me, you know, you can, because I've dealt with this a little bit myself personally, where you can absolutely be going through a hardcore depression, no light at the end of the tunnel, but 
a book or a song or something might be the one thing that makes you feel like everything's going to be okay. It might inspire hope or make you forget about your problems for a little bit. And I understand the other side of that. That's the thing. I understand that as the creator, that's a lot of pressure. You didn't ask for that. You don't want that. And then all of a sudden you feel this unwanted responsibility toward that person. I just feel like not everybody goes crazy from this. Yes, you do have people who tend to go off the deep end, aka Annie Wilkes, but you also have people that they're perfectly okay with just having something that means something to them. And then maybe it inspires them to do something else with their life, you know, or better their situation. Yeah, I think probably most... I don't know, like for me, you know, when I was a teenager, 90s metal and all that stuff, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like you'd hear songs and you're like, holy shit, there's somebody, they, they know, they, understand they what know, I'm they through. get it, right? Yeah. Now, I didn't kidnap anyone <laughs> and make them write music in my house, but I, I can see where people who may be predisposed to that sort of thing hear a, a music or write a song or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. some media and they're like, they mistakenly think they did that for me. Right. Like, that's yeah. exactly the way I'm feeling right now. We must be soulmates. Did we just become best friends? Yeah. And, so and that's the difference. It, yeah. It, it's not that you think, like us rational minded people, it's not necessarily that you think that this person singled you out and made this for you. And oh my God, we must have this connection on a fundamental level. It's just helpful to know that there's somebody out there who has gone through it. Right. So. But Annie takes it to an unhealthy oh, extreme. Yes. Like the the next scene that I'm thinking of is, and I feel like this is where we maybe see, I, I don't know, it's complicated to explain because you could say that when Annie first reads the manuscript that Paul has written for a book that has no name, hasn't been published, she, the mask starts to slip off as soon as she brings up the fact that there's profanity in it, you know? And he tries explaining to her like, look, that's the way kids talk. That's the way I talked growing up. But because she hasn't been built up to this certain image in her mind, that use of profanity is just unacceptable. She will not allow him to be flawed. Yes. But at the same time, the scene where it's raining and she comes into Paul's room and she's obviously depressed and she comes in and she says, when it's raining, I get very sad. And then she's talking about how she has a gun and... Well, she says, she tells him that she was in love with the writer. Now she's in love with him. Yes, yes, yes. And he doesn't have to love her back or something like that. And then, yeah, she pulls out this gun and then says, I better leave before I put bullets in it. Yeah. And the thing is, is to me in that scene, I feel like she is her most realistic. Yeah. Her most human. The thing is, is in that scene is that he clearly thinks that she's talking about shooting him. Yes. But the way she's acting, I don't know that she is. That was my thought too. Is Is this a person that was struggling with suicidal thoughts for a long time? Yeah. That was exactly what I took away from it too. I don't know that she ever intended to use the gun on him so much as herself. But then she turns around later and says that she's always known how this is going to go. And that she knew from day one that she was going to have to kill him and herself. So I don't know. Could be up for debate a little bit. That's what I said. On some things, they're just not entirely clear about it. Right. But I think in Annie's world, (laughs) um, sometimes what's happening or going to happen changes from moment to moment. I heard somebody describe her as having a split personality. I don't know that it's a split personality. She's definitely manic something. Yes, I would say manic. Um, As someone who is manic. (laughs) Maybe schizophrenic. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, Jim. Um, (laughs) 
she's clearly got a lot going on, but I think that her opinion of what things are and how they should be and where it's all going probably changed from moment to and moment. And I would say, and I, and I couldn't help but think about P2 again, there's definitely some of that dissociative personality disorder too, where she's not quite really grasping the reality of what is going on at the same time. You know, the she, she tells Paul several times, after all I do for you, I bathe you and I cook for you and I clean and, and me over here sitting rationally on the couch is going oh never never mind that whole kidnapping thing (laughs) well to draw that parallel between p2 and this film is that in both both films neither kidnapper seems to understand that what they're doing is wrong and they seem completely incapable of understanding why the person that they've kidnapped is not more grateful right it's weird i don't know i just don't i can't make that make sense in my head it's like they're waiting for stockholm syndrome to kick in or something yeah i don't know i don't know that they're aware that that's what they want to happen i think that's just their best possible outcome right right if i keep them here long enough they'll love me i don't know i don't that's the thing is i feel like she well, I mean, had... you kept me here for 20 years and I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind the whole hobbling bit. <laughs> well, I didn't tell him how I tore my calf muscle. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. But no, I just, I feel like they're, it's easy for people to just say Annie's crazy, she's obsessed or whatever, but I feel like there's more to her than that in those little subtleties that she gave. And I really wish that they would have explored a little bit more of her psychology, I guess. Yeah. Again, I need to go back and read the book. I just, I don't know that you could have covered that much ground in a a movie because it's already, this thing is getting close to two hours long anyway. And Stephen King books are notoriously long. Right. Mm -hmm. So... To really do all of it, you're probably going to have to make two films out of that. Or, or put up, you know, throw down a three-hour. Maybe. I'll say, I, I don't know about three films, or two films, but I just... Well, two that are 90 minutes, or one that's about three hours long. Yeah, yeah. I just, I feel like there, and, and even with Paul, there's, I feel like there's some things that could have been a little bit more fleshed out in terms of him, too. Right, right. But, you know, something else I didn't think about until just now is that when Buster's laying in bed reading the uh, reading the book, the title of the book is Misery's Trial, right? Mm-hmm. When he's going through the scrapbook, it shows pictures from Annie's trial. So was she identifying herself as Misery as the character in the book? I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely had to. I mean, she quoted one of the lines from the book when she walked out of the courthouse. Okay. Well, I'm glad you could slow down long enough for me to catch up with you then, because I just put that together. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That she had identified herself as the character in the book. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So do you think he was Ian or Wentworth or Wentworth. whatever? <laughs> Wentworth. They- Winthorne or whatever. J.G. <laughs> Wentworth. That's what I was thinking. So is he Ian or J.G. Wentworth? <laughs> I absolutely do, because that's uh, that's another thing that you tend to do, um, I, and I guess maybe that's why I'm such a lover of film, and I, I've made no secret about it on this channel, that in order for me to love a film, I, it has to induce emotional response for me, and so nine times out of ten, I am putting my place myself in the place of that main character and trying to understand what they're going through, and sometimes I can relate to what they're going through, which makes it easier 
I mean, even if that's a villain in some cases. Um, not so much Paul in this case. I don't know that I can really relate to Paul in any kind of way. Um, I've never been the object of somebody's obsession that way, so I can't. But I can, in a way, relate to Annie just enough that, I don't know. I don't know how to make that sound without <laughs> sounding crazy but I feel like everybody can relate to feeling lonely and you know just wanting somebody to acknowledge you yeah I I, I don't know that I can <laughs> I don't know that I can identify with that that's because you're like ew people get away yeah it's like, I, I don't know I don't know about people <laughs> Um, I mean, it makes sense in this film, though. I mean, I can I can see where somebody could get to that point. I don't I couldn't see me getting to that point. But, right. But I can uh, I can definitely see how people would. I don't know, maybe out of loneliness or some form well, of psychosis we've, or we've talked about it whatever. on the show before, especially in terms of um, everybody's dependence on technology, you know, where we've lost touch with other people now and we get all of our interaction through social media and through the Internet that people don't know how to relate to people anymore. No, I'm, I would agree with that. So I would and say I think the, the, the loneliness is probably amped up in a lot of people. Yeah, and, well, and I think the pandemic led yes. made that worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you already had your keyboard warriors out there that are like, I'm going to say whatever the hell I want to whoever I want to say it to all the time, and how they just fucking do it in person. Right. Um, and it's not acceptable to hit anybody anymore, so... <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> a little fucker out there mouthing off. Like, mm, man, 20 years ago, right in the nose. Um, but you can't do that anymore. You go to jail. So, <laughs> but or you no, get I get canceled it. from the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do. I'm not going to say it. Anyway. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I think the pandemic made that worse and people feeling isolated and all that shit. And do we have to put a disclaimer in this now that we talk about the pandemic in our podcast? No. Like, isn't that a thing now? Like if you talk about it, or if you say coronavirus, then you gotta, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I saw that somewhere. Anyway. So yeah, I don't know. I didn't feel that way necessarily because the industry that I worked in at the time, we were swamped with people all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause they were like, I need 487 rolls of toilet paper to make it through this thing. Like, <laughs> God damn. How many times do you wipe your ass in a day? <laughs> um, so I never got that, the isolation part of it, because uh, the, the we had in retail, it was the opposite effect. It wasn't go home and stay home. It was we need you here all the time now right? Uh, to handle all these people who should be at home, but they're not. They're shopping. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that didn't affect me the way it may have affected people that were like in the tech industry that were working from home and all that shit. Right. Or but, at, the, at the time, I was still just doing my online store. Right. I, you know, I wasn't out there in the hospital or going to school yet like I am now, but... <laughs> But uh, I don't know. I just, I feel like loneliness is a feeling that a lot of people can yeah. can uh, relate to. But see, I, I, I'm, I'm fine, great comfort in my own company. So Didn't she make a quote that's like very if, similar to that? I, like, I guess. If you can't stay in your own company, then you're not going to be very good company for others or something. Right. Yeah, maybe. Ugh. Yeah, I think she did say that. <laughs> I think she did. But honestly, I mean, at the time, if somebody told me, hey, you have to go work from home and you don't have to be around people anymore. Okay. Right. I'm in. Yeah. Let's do this all the time. I'm pretty much right there right now. Like I don't want to. I don't want to go through. I can't. I can't people anymore today. Yeah. No. I'm tired of peopling. (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody gets that at some point, though. We're just like you get social exhaustion. Yeah. Oh, did you just quote your own child? Did I? I was just thinking a term or phrase that London likes to use a lot is "my social battery has run out." And you always roll your eyes every time she says it. But then you have absolutely just confirmed that you feel the same way. Okay, but she does it like <laughs> as soon as she walks into a place she doesn't want to be. <laughs> so do you. 
I can tough it out for a little while. <laughs> yeah, and by a little while, he means all of three minutes. Yes. He goes in three minutes. Okay, when are we leaving? All right, I'm out. <laughs> it's too many people and it's too loud. I got to go. This is why we do online grocery pickup now. <laughs> this is why you do online grocery pickup now. Oh, no, because every time I try to take you into the grocery store with me, you're in there for five minutes and then you're trying to knock people out of the way with your basket Mario Kart style. Yes. <laughs> And if you give me a cart that will shoot turtle shells, <laughs> bananas, we'll be going to the store all the time. <laughs> People in the grocery store are insane, though, and they don't pay attention to yeah. anything. Like they're they're completely oblivious to everything that's going on around them. It's like pull your head out of your ass. It's not a hat. Pay attention. So I feel like we both really enjoyed a couple of characters in this movie, and I feel like we should give them some special attention. Yes. I'm talking about Buster and Virginia. Yes. Husband and wife team. Otherwise known as me and you. Otherwise known as me and you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest, when they first introduced Buster in this, he's on the phone with Sindel, the agent, mm-hmm. and uh, not to be confused with the Mortal Kombat character. And <laughs> <laughs> he he comes off as a little incompetent because she's like, I need to talk to the sheriff or the something. And, and he goes on and he's like, yeah, and I do all these other things in town too. And you're like, okay, so we got kind of a Barney Fife thing. I don't maybe? know that I would go that far. I think he just doesn't care. He just does not give a shit who yeah. she is. I don't know that it's incompetent so much as don't give a fuck. But then as the movie goes on, you find out this dude's a fucking bloodhound. Like yeah. he's good. Yeah. He he is absolutely a beast. As soon as he starts to find out that there's anything shady that's happening, he is absolutely on the case and, and really smart too seeing things that other people have just glossed over he goes to the library and does research (laughs) buffy style right and then he reads the novels almost as if he's trying to get into his head too at the same time well he says that he's like maybe i'll find a clue and he does find a clue yes because he writes down that quote and then at one of the newspaper clippings when he's scrapbooking in the library apparently she quoted the book while she was on trial so he's like oh shit and then the part where he goes to the general store and just grabs a coke like he owns the place (laughs) but then he goes and puts money in the register so i mean he's not a it was kind of weird that he just walked over and opened the register and put his own money in there but yeah. He, yeah. He gave me vibes of... Um, He's like Matlock. <laughs> he gave me vibes of uh, What's-His-Butt in The Shining, though. Um, oh, I don't fuck. know who you're talking about. Red, <laughs> Red Bush. Scatman Crothers. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. As soon as I said Red Bush, I knew you'd get it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Um, I don't know, maybe it's the coat or something, maybe it has nothing to do with the fact that he goes back to the house or hotel to go save the day and then gets axed or shot for his troubles. Right. So I just, I found that very deja vu. But he just took the most, I don't know, I don't know that I would have put it together, like when he's in the general store and he's like, hey, is this lady come in? He's like, oh yeah, he buys these, she buys these books. And he says, she buy anything else? Well, she just buys, you know, typing paper. And he's like, aha. Mm-hmm. Like, he just grabs little stuff. And the next scene, he's at her house. Yeah. And I think as soon as she starts to talk and is going on about how she knows him so well, he starts to deduce that, okay, this lady might be crazy. Well, when he, when she, he asks, what do you know about uh paul sheldon and she hesitates for just a second you can see it on his face there it is like he knows right there as soon as she didn't immediately answer the question as soon as she hesitated he was like this hoe right here (laughs) but he's also 
hip to her kind of shady behavior, too. There's that scene where they're both trying to sneak around and both are aware that the other is trying to sneak out. Yeah, when they're playing peekaboo. Yeah. So it's not just him. I feel like a lot of the characters are smarter than they're given credit for because Paul, for instance, you get, I mean, they don't talk, spend a whole lot of time on it, but he's obviously a kid grew up in New York and he, you know, he, the way he was talking about how he talked as a kid and then with his lock picking later, you kind of get, don't, <laughs> don't. No, I just going to say that. The Go ahead. <laughs> you kind of see that he, and everything that he's trying to do from trying to pour medication in her drinks and setting up these elaborate things of his escape, the dude's pretty intelligent and he's industrious. And so he's not just this guy who writes books. Like he obviously has a will to survive and will do whatever he needs to necessary. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's definitely, he's determined and uh, possesses ingenuity. But the lock picking thing, what I was going to say is like, it's funny that he says when he's trying to do it and he's like, if I can write about it, I ought to be able to do yeah. it. Come on, guy, you wrote about this. Yeah. Yeah. But then Annie, on the other hand, she kind of makes herself out to be like, oh, I'm just this stupid little person that doesn't matter, doesn't doesn't mean anything. First of all, I will go on record. She's a fucking nurse. That is not an easy job. I know this firsthand. You have a lot of shit you have to learn in order to do that. But second, you know, the penguin not facing the way that it's supposed to. There's, there's those little things throughout that show she's not as stupid as Paul is making her out to be either. He So it feels like one giant game of chess between the three characters. Well, I think that on the front side, he grossly underestimates her. Yes. Because like the penguin thing, he catches it, yeah, and he puts it back and he thinks he's okay. But we both noticed it when we were watching it. He put the penguin back backwards. Right. And it comes back later and she was like, the penguin always faces due south. Mm-hmm. So whether it was just OCD on her part and so any little thing that got moved from its original orientation immediately jumped out at her or what. But he clearly did not give her enough credit. Right. He just thought she was crazy. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain amount of cunning there that I don't think he caught until it was too late. Right. Exactly. And then uh, back to Buster, just going back to his, he and his wife's relationship, I love that they they feel like the two most grounded characters in the entire film. Most normal people. <laughs> right. Down to Buster being messy in his office. Like, look, I like things to be a certain way. I have a certain method. And then her, you know, kind of doing the banter back and forth with him, you know, making the jokes, whether or not he's cheating, what he's up to all day and all that. That just feels like real couple banter. Yeah. Well, he, she, when she's on the phone with somebody and she's like, I don't know where he's at. He's probably out having an affair somewhere. <laughs> and then when he comes in with all those books, she's like, well, I guess at least she's a reader. And he's like, well, I appreciate you think I've got enough energy for that. Right. And then him laying in bed reading the books and he's telling her all the stuff. And she's like, that's nice, dear. In other yeah. words, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, no, that's typical married behavior. Yes, but I loved it. I thought that that's, it's one of the film's in, endearing qualities. It was realistic enough to make it go, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And make us kind of look at each other and go, aw. <laughs> <laughs> I accuse you of cheating every day. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but she does. No. <laughs> Just kidding. But um, no. So I guess to wrap this thing up, honey, what do you love about Misery? Uh, as loaded as that yeah, question is. <laughs> I kind of covered it all. Um, I feel like the standout really from the whole movie is Kathy Bates' performance. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to list that first. Second to that is probably going to be James Caan because I feel like his was maybe underappreciated in this film because mm-hmm. his, again, had to be 
pretty subtle or something. Maybe that's not the word I'm looking for. His, he had less to do, but his would have been pretty hard by itself just because he was so restricted with movement and all that. Mm-hmm. Seems like it's really hard for an actor or actress to have the camera focused straight on their face. You know, that's all you can see in the frame is just their face. And now they have to convey an emotion or something like that in an almost static shot. So that's really hard. And then probably Buster in Virginia. I really enjoyed those two. I could have done with more than that. Like there could be a whole movie that's just them <laughs> and right. I would probably watch it. Right. Like Buster solving crimes and her accusing him of cheating. <laughs> and I would be okay with that. Um, I know we typically do things that we hated. I don't really have anything in this movie. There's nothing okay. There's nothing that I was like, yeah, I, don't, I just don't like that. Right. No. Again, it's not a movie that I would go back to and like, I'm going to watch it again tomorrow or any, you know, it's not a. It's not because it's bad. It's because it's, it's. It's almost a tiring movie. Like, you're emotionally wore out by the time you get to the end nearly. Right. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, but yeah, it's still a great movie. It's just not one that I would rewatch often, I think. Highly recommend, though. Yeah, absolutely. How about you? Uh, so, I, I, I guess for me, I, like you said, and I, I think the easy answer to, is Kathy Bates. I think that's everybody's answer. For me, it's not, to be honest. Um for me, see, I'm any anybody that knows me or has listened to the show knows that I'm a gorehound. I am a slasher lover. Like that, that's my thing. I don't really tend to enjoy psychological horror that much. It's not my thing. That being said, when you find that one, you know it immediately. Like this, mil- this film is fucking great. You know, something like Midsummer or Hereditary or The Witch. There's those out there that just stand out as, okay, this is not my genre, but this is a fucking terrific film. And I think that this is right up there. And I've gone on record a few times and said that there weren't very many good horror films that came out in the 90s. And I, the more we go into them, the more I feel like I'm, I may have to start eating my words because when there are films like this and Silence of the Lambs that exist, it's like, no, they just weren't any slasher films in the 90s. And that could be all the difference in the world or, or Candyman even. There's really terrific films that came out in the 90s. But for me, I guess what I love the most about this film is how intimate it is, how confronting it is with the psychological issues. Um, It really puts a lot of stuff just right in your face and forces you to deal with the issues within yourself, I guess I would say. And a lot of films don't do that, you know? And so I think for me, that that's, that's what I love the most about it. Um, as well as like you've already brought up the performances and characters. I, I do love all those things too. As far as things I hated, nothing. There's nothing I hate. Um, mixed. I am mixed about a couple of things. And that is one I, like I've, we've already said, I do wish they would have explored a little bit more of Annie's backstory so we could have a better sense of what happened to her apart from just a few clippings in a scrapbook. And two, kind of the same thing with Paul. Like for instance, at the end of this film, him seeing Annie in the face of a waitress or whatever, um, you get the idea that he does have some PTSD. He's going to live with this for the rest of his life. But in the novel, I believe they said that he struggles a lot more and it goes into more in depth about his yeah, alcoholism and nightmares and that. And I kind of wish we had got that 
ending just a little bit because even though he does see Annie, he's still sitting there smiling. He still has a best-selling book and you you get the idea he's going to be okay. I kind of wish that they would have had the more realistic downtrodden ending, if I'm being honest. Maybe that's just me. Well, that's the ending that they would put on a movie now. I think. Yeah. Um, Because that, you know, they'd give you the Zack Snyder's cut. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's a lot darker at the end. Uh, But in the 90s, they still didn't do that. They tried to, I mean, he didn't get a happy ending, but it wasn't bad either. It still felt like everything was wrapped up neatly. I think that your your audiences in the 90s wouldn't have known how to deal with an ending like that. Right. Where he's just an alcoholic and not dealing with it well at all. I mean, in the 90s, that's how you start a movie. That's not how you end one. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it would make an interesting ending. I don't know how fulfilling it would feel at the end. I mean, it's one of those, it's like, I don't like it, but it feels appropriate. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's probably the right ending. It's just not an ending I like. So I'm going to have to go kidnap this person now, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But yeah, that would have been more real. So final thoughts on the film. Watch it. That's it? That's all I got. You you have no Jerry Springer speech? I don't. I do. Okay. (laughs) I knew you would. Are we going to have a fight on stage? (laughs) No. Okay. No. I just I just want to say we we've said it on the show. We've talked about it already a lot now. Um the people no matter how famous they are, no matter how wealthy they are, no ma- no much no matter how much notoriety they have. At the end of the day, they're still people, you know? Maybe they're a little bit luckier than we are, but they're not responsible for your happiness at the end of the day. Let writers write what they want to write. Let music musicians tackle other genres. Let artists have that room to grow and change as people the way we grow and change as people. You know, we don't know what goes on in the outside lives of of a lot of these people. So we have no idea what their responsibilities are, what they go through in their day to day. So the next time you get pissy about, well, this person's not doing this as fast as I would like, or they're not putting out this thing that I liked before, give them or give them a chance and grow with them as a person. And who knows, you might, you know, it might be more fulfilling to you later on. Yeah. Also, uh, take care of yourselves and I each agree. other. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, but I think it's important to remember that a lot of times uh, you're, I guess, content creators. I know that's mostly internet now, but I think everybody is considered that in some form or fashion, right? Writers and musicians and that sort of thing. A lot of times they do the things they do because they're working through their own problems through that media. Yes. Um, if you read if you read enough Stephen King and you know enough about Stephen King and if you've stalked him and followed him to his house like I have, um, not really. <laughs> I was like, when did you do that? <laughs> when did I fly to Maine? <laughs> um, no. Not Maine anymore, Florida. Oh. oh, well, shows you how much I keep up with him. <laughs> but clearly you... <laughs> Uh, but no, a lot of his books address um, addiction and alcoholism because that was mm-hmm. something that he struggled with early in his career. Um, or and lack so, of a father. Yeah. And so that was stuff that he was probably processing through his novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not processing your problems through his novels. He was working through his own. Right. And so I think it's important to give anybody that, that makes something, music, words, whatever, Give them that respect and understand that they got their own demons to deal with and that that may be how they're dealing with it. And if you can relate to it, then that's fantastic. And if it helps you, that's even better. But if it's not for you, then find something else that Move is. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do like our own self-help <laughs> podcast. Right. I feel like we talk more shit about this than we do anything else. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Dead and Married. And we're still continuing with Christmas slash winter theme. We're doing something in a cold place. <laughs> 
before Christmas. That may or may not have anything to do with Christmas. <laughs> so next week we are going to go back to Christmas and we are going to tackle Gremlins, which I'm drawing a blank on the year of its release right now. But I think it's 1984. But yes, next week we will be talking Gremlins and we hope that you will once again, I can't talk. We hope that you will join us for that. But until then, see ya. Bye. What would you do to save the life of a teenage boy? If you subscribe to our Patreon for just 3 to $10 a month, you can get Aiden out of the industrial-sized hamster wheel we use to power our show. <laughs> for that, you'll get access to bonus content and allow me to remove Aiden's handcuffs. He doesn't run worth shit with them on anyway. Also be sure to show your support on our social media pages. You can find us on Twitter as TravisL80 and SpookyMom83. Thank you for your consideration. <laughs>